It's a spellbinding 21st century opera about a medieval troubadour and his idealized love who lives across the sea. Today, everything you need to know about the Met's newest production, Kaya Sariaho's La Mort de Loin. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Kyle Homewood. L'Amour de Loin is a tender tale of passion and longing and an opera that has grown in stature since its premiere at the Salzburg Festival in 2000. It's on stage at the Met now through December 29th, starring Susanna Phillips, Tamara Mumford, and Eric Owens, conducted by Susanna Melke. Audiences around the world can see it in movie theaters live in HD on Saturday, December 10, 2016. In a recent lecture presented by the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Naomi Baratera explored Saria Ho's dreamlike, impressionistic score, and the love from afar that is expressed in the opera's title. Thank you, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you today to talk about this very important and very beautiful work. The story, as we are going to discover together, is very simple, but layered with history and symbolism and interpretive depth. Themes of love and longing, distance, assumptions we make about our feelings for each other, the divide between East and West, all of these come together in this very multi-layered work with lots of rich historical influences and different poetic meanings for us to dig into. Kaya Saria Hoslamor de Loin made its premiere here at the Met just a few days ago. And as the press and critics have alluded to since it was announced as part of the season, it is a very historic event in Met history. L'Amour de Loin marks now the second opera in the entire history of the Metropolitan Opera to be composed by a woman. And there is more than a century separating it from the first opera composed by a woman in 1903 and Saria Ho's work today. And the premiere run here at the Met also features the fourth female conductor in Met history, Susanna Malki. Our librettist for the opera is Amin Malouf. He is a Lebanese-born French author with several awards to his name, and he has now created four opera libretti. All four of them are in collaboration with our composer, Kaya Sariaho. So a little bit of background first about Sariaho, and then we'll dive into the source material and the musical elements and plot of the work. So she was born in Helsinki in 1952. She studied at the Helsinki University of Art and Design. She was very strongly connected with the Sibelius Academy at the university. And it was there that she started dabbling in and kind of getting exposed to avant-garde style and composition. She then spent a little bit of time in Germany studying before she made the move to Paris in 1982. And it was in Paris that she became involved with the IRCAM, the Institute for Research and Coordination in Acoustics and Music. And it was in Paris that she became very interested in merging traditions between orchestral instruments, traditional acoustic instruments, and computer-generated sounds, experimenting with timbre, slow-moving blocks of sound that morph and shift and change gradually over time. 
And her style has come to merge all of these elements together, integrating things like lyrical writing and melody and expressive dynamics, rhythmic components, and pitch clusters into a very impressionistic kind of style. Some people compare her to a little bit of Debussy, a little bit of Ravel mixed in with very modern trends. And so this is what we're going to see in the opera. And she was fascinated by the story of Geoffrey Rudel long before she ever decided to turn it into an opera. She was a lover of literature. She discovered the story and felt very connected with it. And so she actually set it first as a song cycle that she wrote for Don Upshaw. And so there was an initial kind of dabbling in the source material from that perspective. And then she went to a performance of Messiaen's Saint Francois de Assis, or an opera based on the life of Saint Francis of Assisi. And she said to herself, well, if that's an opera, then I can write an opera too. <laughs> so it took her actually 10 years to compose L'Amour de Loin. And she described this 10-year process as first thinking about the work and conceptualizing it for several years in her mind and kind of thinking about what she really wanted to express with these characters, what story she really wanted to tell. Then she actually wrote and composed the opera in an 18-month time span. And then she said that was followed by several years of reflection before it actually made it to the stage. The opera was commissioned by the Salzburg Festival in collaboration with another theater in Paris. And it made its world premiere in Salzburg in the year 2000 in the famous rock riding school. So for those of you who are fans of The Sound of Music, the theater where the Von Trapp family singers sing their last performance in Austria before fleeing uh, over the Alps in that very famous scene in the movie, that is where this particular work made its world premiere. From there, it went to Santa Fe in 2002 where Desiree Mays, who we all know and love here as a lecturer at the Met Opera Guild, came in contact with it and did lots of work with it with the Santa Fe Opera. And so I am greatly indebted to her in the content of this lecture because there will be a lot of quoting of different things she has written and said about it, and she passed on an immense amount of resources for us. So a big thank you to Desiree. And since the opera was performed in Santa Fe, it has then been performed at numerous opera houses all over the globe. Uh, when it was performed at the Finnish National Opera, they turned it into a DVD. So there is an actual DVD recording of the work. And then tonight, and, or last week, it came to the Met, and tonight we get to see it on the Met stage. So it really has quite a life, this work, before it has come to New York City. When Saria Ho was asked in interviews why she chose this story, what it was about the story that compelled her to turn it into an opera, she really focused on her connection with the characters. So she said that, I felt a growing affinity with all three characters. I saw myself as the composer in Geoffrey, as a woman living in exile in Clemence, and in the pilgrim who is the destiny that binds these two lives. So we're going to talk a little bit about the source material, who was this Geoffrey Rudel, and then talk about how it gets transferred into the opera. So Geoffrey was a prince in France, and he was born in the early to mid 12th century, and he's a part of the troubadour tradition. He probably died during the Second Crusade, we think, in and around 1147 or 1148. 
And he's noted for developing the theme of love from afar, the name of our opera, L'Amour de Loin. So that's really what he's credited for. There are seven poems by Geoffrey Rudel that survive in manuscripts from this medieval period. Four of those seven poems have music actually notated that accompany the poems in the manuscripts. So it really does connect the strand or histories of literature and poetry and music. So the troubadour tradition is very important in music history. Whenever you take music history survey classes or if you teach them, you always talk about the troubadours and their impact on the dissemination of music at this time. And almost everything we know about the real Geoffrey Rudel comes from his Vida, which is a common part of a troubadour manuscript. A Vida is like a little tiny life biography of the poet that wrote all of these songs. And so the Vida of Geoffrey Rudel goes like this, and this is a translation of the original by Rupert T. Pickens into English so that we can all understand it. It says, Geoffrey Rudel of Blay was a very noble man, the Prince of Blay, and he became enamored with Countess of Tripoli without ever seeing her because of all the good things he heard about her from the pilgrims who came from Antioch. And he wrote many songs and poems about her with beautiful melodies and simple words. And in his desire to see her, he became a crusader and set out to sea in a boat. And in the boat, a great sickness came over him, so horrible that those with him thought he would die in the boat. When they arrived in Tripoli, he was taken like a dead man to an inn. The countess was told what had happened, and she went to his bedside and took him in her arms. He immediately knew she was the countess, and his hearing, sight, and breathing recovered, and he praised God for sustaining his life long enough to see her. And thus he died in the arms of the lady, and she had him buried with great honor in the temple. Afterwards, on the same day, she became a nun out of grief for him and for his death. So Geoffrey and the troubadours are all a part of this trend in history that we call the fin amour, or courtly love. And it was a little bit unanticipated, this kind of resurgence or big creation of very refined and complex poetry at this time in history. We still don't know exactly what the roots are of this creation of this style, and it's not fully understood, but essentially the troubadours were knights, kings, rulers, and warriors who were no longer focusing their attention on fighting and battle, and instead pursuing love and admiration of women. In this poetry, the whole idea is that you have expressions of many dimensions of love, very importantly focusing on chaste and noble love, admiration of women from afar, idealizing women, writing about their many attractive qualities, everything that makes her refined. There is an incredibly romantic quality to it, but always steering away from carnal or lust-ridden descriptions and focusing on this chaste admiration. So the troubadour poets were essentially suffering under the weight of deep but unattainable, unfulfilled love. And they're usually written in a very multi-layered way, so there are many different kinds of love that are expressed in the poems. There's lots of symbolism, wordplay, metaphors, dual meanings, including a lot of allusions to love of God and the divine, and all of this is bound up in this love language that comes out in these poems. And the word troubadour comes from the French verb to find. So there's this whole history of these men who would 
actually travel around looking for new melodies, looking for new ideas to write about, and they would actually try and disseminate their songs to different courts that they visited. And that's how we have them today, because the dissemination of these songs on different pieces of parchment were eventually collected and put into manuscripts to be preserved. And many of the courtly love stories that they talk about in the poetry are still with us today. The legend of Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot comes from troubadours. The story of Tristan and Isolde is found in troubadour writing, which is really interesting because they have this magic love potion, and the fact that Tristan and Isolde turn from a pursuit of chaste love to a pursuit of sensual love leads to their demise, eventually bringing death. So in writing about this connection between opera and the troubadours, why does Saria Ho pick up this theme and what does it give us, uh, Desiree Mays stated in some of her writing that opera has much in common with the early troubadours. We all love from afar, whether it is across the footlights or the centuries. Composer Kaya Saria Ho and her troubadour librettist Amin Maluf bridge these two worlds in their opera with music that expresses coloristic yearning for far-off lands, times, and loves. Filled with impressionistic sound magic, this score, at once tender and philosophical, is composed in an adagio spirit that is reflective and lyrical. Once enthralled by a dream of courtly love, there is little reference to reality. Clemence, Rudel's countess, may well be a figment of his imagination, his dream of perfection, we do not know. His love is like the love of God or the Virgin, a love that ennobles, a love that nurtures the soul and transcends the everyday, coloring all life with a mystical glow. The events in Rudel's poetry and songs are projections of his longing. Whether this platonic love, divine delirium, or an ecstasy of the soul, there is both madness and crystal clear sanity in its strange, exalted state of being. So now I wanted to turn to the music so that we have a sense of what musical language we're going to encounter in this work before we start talking about specific moments and going through the plot to see how this all comes together. So of course, this is a modern work written you know, very close to our own present day. And so there is certainly an element of modernism in it, but it's certainly, I think, a fusion of several stylistic elements and compositional influences. As I mentioned, Saria Ho was heavily influenced by the avant-garde movement in Europe in the 1980s. And there was actually a point where she went on record saying that she would never, ever write an opera, and she would never write a classical symphony. She now has four operas to her name, still no symphonies, but also several other major vocal works. She's very influenced by timbre, so types of sounds which link her with the French spectral music school or trend of composing. But she's very adamant in interviews that that is not the only way she wants to be defined. She doesn't want to be stuck strictly within the French spectral style. It's just one facet of her compositions. And she talks a lot about exploring tensions between sound and noise, also tensions between consonance and dissonance. And so she's not an entirely atonal composer, but she's not entirely tonal either. She moves very fluidly between these two polarities, blurring the boundaries, and really exploring how sound, timbre, harmonies, and melodies can transform and unfold over time, and how you can immerse the audience in a kind of hypnotic sound world. So it really is a coming together of many different things. 
Now, there was a description in the New York Times that Tomasini wrote when the work made its premiere, its world premiere in Salzburg. And I think he has a really great kind of summation of talking about the sound of this work. So to quote Tomasini, he describes it in this way. A haunting and resonant work, L'Amour de Loin, the most important offering of this summer's ambitious Salzburg festival, is an often transfixing and utterly distinguished work. The ovations were prolonged and deserved. Though it was, though it was not intended as such, L'Amour de Loin provides a jolt of sanity amid the political conflicts that of late had been rattling the world, Austria in particular, over issues of nationality, immigration, the sanctity of borders, and the cultural gulf between West and East. Mr. Maluf treats these themes in his effortlessly poetic text, one of the strongest librettos in some time. Idealized love is a well-worn theme, but Mr. Maluf has found a fresh way to revisit it. His words invite music, and Miss Sariaho has provided a lushly beautiful score structured in five continuous lasting acts. Best known for her exploration of sound, Miss Sariaho continues in the vein here with music that combines vivid orchestration the subtle use of electronic instruments, and imaginative, sometimes unearthly writing for chorus, which sings from the side of the stage. The vocal writing is by turns elegiac and conversational. Her harmonic language is tonally grounded with frequent use of sustained low pedal tones, but not tonal. Bits of dissonance, piercing overtones, and gently jarring electronic sound spike the undulant harmonies, but so subtly that the overall oral impression is of beguiling consonants. Her evocations of the troubadour songs with medieval modal harmony and fragments of elegiac tunes are marvelous. So as we go into the plot, I wanted you to just see a little bit of the production because this is a new production on the roster this season. And so there was a lot discussed in reviews when it first made its premiere last week about the look of the production. This is a production photo. And you can see that there's actually no water on stage in the production. This is designed by Canadian director Robert Lepage. It was a co-production with one of the festivals in Quebec, and it premiered in Quebec in the summer of 2015 before coming here. And so one of the defining features since the separation of these two characters by a sea is so important is that instead of having actual water on stage, he has thousands and thousands of LED lights strung horizontally across the stage and then uses the computer programming of different colors and movements of these lights to project different times of day and feelings and moods into every moment. So sometimes it looks like the dawn coming up over an ocean or still water. Sometimes it looks like there's lots of movement because the lights are just moving in all different patterns. And of course we have a boat because a boat is very essential in the story that traverses this light water that he creates. And interestingly, the chorus, which plays a big role in the whole atmosphere of the music, is placed under these lights on stage. So this is a photo where you can see the music stands and seats for the chorus underneath these strings of LED lights on the stage. So what actually happens and how does all of this music come together and influences in the plot? Our place, as far as the story goes, is starts in Aquitaine, France, but it also takes place in Tripoli, in Lebanon, north of the Holy Land. And there is a sea separating these two places. It's the 12th century. It's during the Crusades. There are massive quests at this time, legions of Christian soldiers 
that are attempting to retake the Holy Land. And so it's a very religious time in Europe. And at the same time that all these crusades are happening, the Catholic Church is also on its own crusade to destroy heresy amongst its people in its immediate lands. So this is the time of the Great Inquisition. There are three characters in the opera. Geoffrey Rudel, our prince and troubadour, who's obsessed with idealized love. This is a baritone role sung in our production by Eric Owens. We have the pilgrim, who is the go-between between Geoffrey and Clemence, and carries messages back and forth. This is a mezzo-soprano role sung by Tamara Mumford. However, Saria Ho has gone on record saying that this can be a very androgynous role, so she said that you could imagine this or could produce this with a countertenor in this particular role, but for our production, we have it in its most traditional or original conception as a mezzo-soprano. And then we have Clemence, the Countess of Tripoli, who is the object of Geoffrey's love. And as I mentioned, the opera is in five acts, and so they are short acts, almost like five scenes, really, and there's an intermission in our structure right in the middle. And again, these little short acts or scenes have been described as ephemeral, fleeting dream sequences that altogether tell this story. So the opening of Act One, I think, is really essential in transporting us into this world. It's really a beautiful orchestral moment, introduces you to this sound that Sarya Ho is so associated with. It begins with very low layered drones that stack on top of each other. And then there's also this ethereal bell or marimba-like percussion happening. And there's a growing tone cluster in all of these layered sounds. And then there's also this circular pattern of pitches that just keeps getting reiterated over and over again. We call that an ostinato happening on top of these drones. And then this goes in the clarinets, bassoons, flutes, and then later the violins join in this ostinato. And there's all kinds of fluttering in these instruments, these kind of fluttering all over the place. We hear harp and brass added to the texture as well. And then towards the end of this opening, it's about five minutes long, we have cymbals and drums, wood blocks, and more bells that join the whole texture. And so there's this slow swell in the orchestra that really grows and expands and then tapers off again, much like the powerful rolling of an ocean wave or seas washing to and fro. So we're going to listen to this. And if you want, you can just close your eyes because this really is the portal through which we are all transported into the opera at the very beginning of the work.
So that is how the opera begins. And from there, when we first meet Joffre, he's the first character that we meet, he's lamenting the fact that he's become bored and dissatisfied with life. He's struggling to find inspiration. And the 12th century real version of Joffre in the telling of this story wrote these words. He knows not how to sing, who plays no tunes and makes no verse and finds no words. And he knows not what poetry is if he does not hear its language in himself. Thus begins my song, the more you hear it, the more you'll like it. And so then in the opera, he says, I spend my days and nights composing my songs. Each note and each rhyme must pass the strictest test. I dress and undress 20, 30 times before I find the precise word that has been hanging in the sky for all eternity, awaiting its destination. And so from here, talking about his struggle to find inspiration, he goes on to talk about how he has imagined this true, pure, deep love, this idealized woman who is perfect and fulfills everything he ever dreamed of, but how there's no way that she exists in real life anywhere. And he says, he sings, I have learned to speak of happiness, but I have not learned how to be happy. I saw a nightingale, his words calling to its mate. My own words call only to other words. My verses call only to other verses. So this moment in the opera when he's singing this are also drawn directly from another song that the real Geoffrey Rudel wrote and that exists in manuscripts. So both the text and the music of the original source are woven into the opera. So what we're going to do is listen to this moment in the original song and then we'll listen to the parallel moment of the song in the opera. So this will get that medieval sound that Saria Ho was drawing upon in your ear. So this is a live recording from June 2013. Alan Fish is singing, Catherine Byrne is on flute, Louis McLeod is on guitar, and Andrew Yearly is on the mandola, and Neil Johnston is on cello. Ben came and 
of this in the opera sounds like this and remember that this melody that you just heard is the one of the inspirations of the actual score and is woven throughout the opera in different places so this is the parallel moment in act one of this particular song <laughs> love the chorus who are playing the role of his companions or friends make fun of him for these desires telling him that a woman like that could not possibly exist but then the pilgrim enters and having just returned from a voyage to Tripoli informs Joffre that indeed a woman does exist exactly as he has described and the pilgrim says I remember when I first saw this woman and conversations fell silent. Every gaze was drawn towards her like butterflies with powdery wings that have just spotted light. Beautiful without the arrogance of beauty, noble without the arrogance of nobility, and pious without the arrogance of piety. Beautiful libretto. The libretto was praised for its poetry, and you can see why. So upon hearing this, Joffre becomes completely devoted to loving this woman that he's never met, and the pilgrim speaks very highly of her. It's the Countess Clemence of Tripoli. And he basically constructs in his imagination what she looks like, what she acts like, what she sounds like. And the act ends with him musing on this love. Then in act two, we are now on the other side of the sea in Tripoli. We're in a garden. The music that's given to the chorus is full of fluttering whispers, very magical sounding elements. It's supposed to be an exotic place. And Clemence is standing on the shores 
near the garden and near the water and she sees the pilgrim and then the pilgrim tells her that he has just been or she has just been in France and so Clemence goes on to kind of reminisce about her childhood long ago because her family was originally from France and then when she was about five moved to Tripoli and so there's this longing for France and then the pilgrim informs her that while he was in France he came across Joffre and told Joffre all about her and that Joffre this troubadour prince is now completely in love with her and what the pilgrim does is he sings a song to Clemence that Joffre sang to him so there's kind of this telling or seducing of Clemence through the pilgrim and through this song and at first Clemence is a little incensed or offended that a man from far away thinks that he can set his sights in love upon her but then she's slowly taken over by this idea of a noble love that has been focused on her so this is just a little clip of when the pilgrim is repeating Geoffrey's poem to Clemence this communication of love through almost like broken telephone right and so here this is the pilgrim singing to Clemence the words and music of Geoffrey of two separate scenes and the first scene opens with this really anxious tense feeling in the orchestra we have brass and woodwinds fluttering in the high register and then this pulsing repeating oscillated pattern in the lower instruments and in the percussion and then there's this chord cluster so there's lots of sustained prolonged pedal tones underneath and it sounds just like this
so why this tense, anxious feeling? The pilgrim has returned to France, once again crossed the sea, and Joffre is waiting for him, overcome with anxiety and curiosity. He's desperate for news of Clemence, and the pilgrim tells him that Clemence knows about him, that he delivered his song to her, and Joffre decides that it's not good enough that she's heard the song through the pilgrim. He absolutely must travel to meet her in person so that she can hear my songs from my own mouth. Then in the second scene, we are now across the sea and Clemence is singing the song that the pilgrim just delivered to her. And we hear double reeds in the orchestra. There's English horn and oboe and there's also clarinet in there. And all of this works to create the illusion to kind of an exotic Eastern sound. And double reeds are historically an opera used for this particular effect. The attendants, which are played by the chorus that are around Clemence, basically ask her if she's lamenting the fact that this love from afar that she's experiencing will never turn into reality. And she replies with, quote, I do not suffer. I do not know if I would love his voice as much as I love his music, so I do not wait for him. And when Sariaho was asked about this particular moment, she said she was very interested in the character of Clemence, and she said that Clemence who is the object of this idealization and who sees that truth and expectations are far apart. And yet, beauty is in the eyes of the one who sees, and that makes love possible and magical. So from here, following intermission, so sometime while we're in intermission, Joffre decides that he is going to go and he's just going to set out on his boat. And so when Act 4 begins, we are launched into another musical depiction of water and of the ocean. And so again, we have kind of a big crash. There's low forte instruments playing. There's lots of layered pitches again, similar to the very opening that swell and then fade away. And the whole thing is meant to depict this tumultuous sea that Joffre is traversing in order to get to his love. And also listen in this, you'll definitely be able to hear some of the electronic instruments that are added. It's very subtle, usually just in the bottom or in, in the lower, more atmospheric part of the orchestration. And there's also glissandi that happens. So you hear these like whoop, whoop in the orchestra. And then also harp and percussion are added into the mix. So all of this depicts the sea.
And then in the boat, Joffre is singing of his anxieties about this whole situation. Did he make the right decision making the journey without really telling Clemence or warning her that he was coming or even asking her if she wanted to see him in the first place? And all this anxiety makes him so distraught that he makes himself ill, incredibly sick. But despite all of these anxieties that are really eating away at his physical body, and he, he has growing physical pain, he presses onward, dreaming of her, saying, she was here, her white dress lit up the night, she sang a song I had written for her. And so he really starts hallucinating or dreaming about her. And he says, your love fills my mind waking and dreaming, but it's dreaming I prefer because in my dreams, you're mine. And this moment is what we call the phantom duet between Joffre and Clemence. And it's one of my favorite parts of the opera because as he's dreaming about her, she appears there with him and they have this whole duet that they sing. And in the production on the DVD that we're going to watch in a moment, she's actually, it looks as if she's standing on the water and moving around him, walking on the water. And she's wearing a white dress just like he describes. And so it's a love duet, but one that as you're listening to it and watching it, you think, well, this is happening in his mind, but then the pilgrim is there with him in the boat, and it's this beautiful expression of their love for afar kind of coming closer and closer together. So in Desiree's description of this scene, I thought was really beautiful, so I wanted to share it. She said, the score whispers secrets, secrets of love, of self-love, of the fear of love, even of a fear of the love of life. So we're going to watch this clip from the DVD. This is Gerald Finley singing Joffre, and it's Don Upshaw singing Clemence, and I believe it's uh, Monica Gour singing The Pilgrim.
elle dit plaindre l'âme et elle avait disparu. All right. So then the final act opens with the pilgrim assuring Joffre that everything he has described is not a dream. And in fact, he has arrived at the shores of Tripoli, and he is closer than ever before to his love. But at this point, Joffre is dying, and a message is sent to Clemence that he is here and not long for this world. Despite initial insecurities, there's a moment where Clemence sings about she doesn't know how to act, she doesn't know what to say, she doesn't know what she should look like when she first meets him. She goes to him, and Joffre immediately recognizes her. He sings, it is you, I would have recognized you amongst all women. Clemence tells him that his songs have brought her happiness, and Joffre tells her that she looks radiant, and she holds Joffre in her arms, and they sing to each other in love as Joffre succumbs to death. They briefly kiss, and Joffre sings, in this instance, I have all I wish. Why ask life for more? And then he dies. Clemence stands angry with God for granting him, granting her only a brief fleeting moment of united perfect love with him. And the chorus begs her to stop this angry rant because they're afraid of God's wrath. And so there's this huge crescendo in the chorus and then there's a grand pause and then Clemence begins to wander around the stage almost aimlessly or in a daze or a dream while the pilgrim sings a monologue about the whole situation. And then when Clemence begins to sing, this moves into the final aria that closes the opera. And she decides that she's going to go into a convent and she sings, I am the widow of a man who did not know me. Tomorrow I hide myself away beneath the convent roof. And it's a magnificent aria for Clemence. She sings passionately about her love for Joffre as well as her love for God. And so it's a really interesting mix and that shows you that kind of ambiguity about what kind of love are they singing about or is the poetry getting at. So we're going to watch this last scene. This is again Don Upshaw and think about that kind of layered nature of the love of troubadour poetry as you watch and so this is how the whole opera comes to a close. <laughs>
wanted to leave you with two closing thoughts. One, a quote from the composer, and one, a quote from Desiree Mays. So the first, the composer, I speak about the mindsets of these characters. What does it mean that we love somebody? And do we really love another person, or do we love our idea of love? And then about death, what happens to us when we lose somebody we love? Transcendence is related to love and deals with the limits of human feelings. Considering such a phenomenon is fascinating. One encounters idealizations of love every day. It is not something that happened only in the Romantic period. However, I do not mean to idealize love in my opera, but rather to envisage what happens when love is idealized. And then finally, a final word from Desiree. The troubadour poems interweave many levels of meaning. Their richness lies in the slow unraveling, verse by verse, measure by measure, of the elusive truth that lies at the heart of the matter. This rich unraveling is recapitulated in Saria Ho's dreamlike score. Opera is indeed the legitimate progeny of the troubadour's quest. Thank you so much for being a wonderful audience, and I'll see you at the opera tonight. That was a pre-performance lecture given by Naomi Baratera on L'Amour de la Wham by Kaya Sariaho, which received its Metropolitan Opera debut December 1st. We always love to hear your thoughts and feedback, and hope you'll take a moment to review our podcast in iTunes and Google Play Music. I'm Kyle Homewood. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.